Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, DC. Our show is proudly sponsored by the DC chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. So welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. I'm the CEO of Blackburn Capital Advisors and the chapter president for the Entrepreneurs Organization of Washington, DC. Today's guest is an invigorating entrepreneur with a zeal for problem solving. He's a venture partner of NextGen Venture Partners, a member of the K Street Capital and CEO of Think Nimble. Welcome, Neil Shaw. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. I am excited to be here. It's great to have you. So our podcast is around leadership, and there's one favorite question I ask all my guests. Neil, tell me some misconceptions around leadership. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great question because I do think a lot of times, you know, we treat leadership uh, as a science, you know, we kind of think that there's like a lot of like tried and true principles. And I think ultimately, like leadership is just a series of connections between individual people. It's one-on-one relationships that kind of scale. Um, and so for me, like, you know, we're, we're about a 35-person dev agency here in Washington, D.C., uh, most of our team is in-house. Uh, most of our team are um, sort of in our office in, uh, in DC. And so I think my big misconception when I was starting to scale out this company was that it was going to work like a software program. You know, there was going to be a lot of processes and procedures and structures that kind of defined this thing. And maybe that's bias given my background and kind of the industry that I'm in. Um, but it's just way more interpersonal and way more uh, you know, nuanced than I think uh, you know, we take it. And I think the, as we've gotten bigger and bigger, I think what I've realized is it's okay for it to become, you know, an extension of our personalities. It's okay for culture to just be individual relationships. And in fact, that is kind of a thing that scales much better than you think it does. So. That's interesting. Um, you mentioned your previous background. And if I understand it correctly, you were more in the software development side in which you can build a program. And if it works, you can just run it over and over again. And, and now you're running a business that involves people. And right, talk, yeah. to us, talk to us about, that shifted as a CEO of both, like how have yeah. you had to shift your mindset for to run both types of businesses? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I'll let me I'll go through my background really briefly because I think it might be helpful for the listeners. But I, I ran a venture back tech startup for a long while. It was called Aspire. We were an HR technology company, and we worked with uh, big companies like Uber and Geico and Northwestern Mutual to provide uh, employee engagement programs based on traditional sort of like 401k, healthcare, those sorts of benefits, right? But then also non-traditional benefits like mental wellness programs and health and wellness programs and, you know, good team retreats and in-office programs and all, all of this stuff. Um, and we, we ran that, we, we, we ran that company for five years, uh, you know, went through our series A, um, series B, and then sold to a company called Markham, which is one of the larger accounting firms in the United States right now. Um, we, it was interesting because it was a very traditional tech company we were like SaaS, you know, went through an incubator, raised our seed round, did everything kind of like by the book. Um, and this new company, Think Nimble, is a, is a, is a professional services firm. You know, we work with early stage companies and it's all labor hours and people and projects and all that. And you think, uh, you know, these industries are wildly different from one another. You think a product-based business and a tech business are just completely fundamentally different, you know, but 90% of what makes business work is the same. You know, it's all about people and relationships and process and structure and how you organize, you know, information and different parts of your thing. And the 10% is what makes it really distinct. Um, And so that's been kind of heartening is like, you know, even though I'm in wildly different sort of like 
you know, business models right now. There's so much I can draw from the first business that's applied to the second business. Fantastic. Does it also then open up your mind even further for future businesses and ideas and those types of things? Walk us through sort of like how it's giving you a little bit more freedom to think creatively about the work that you're doing now and work you want to do in the future. Yeah, I yeah, I, I think it definitely has. I do think business and entrepreneurship is a discipline, you know, and like in the same way you go from being a junior developer to an intermediate developer to a senior developer or like an associate consultant to an intermediate consultant or whatever, you sort of do that as an entrepreneur too, right? And like the, um, the sort of like mental shortcuts that you can take as you start your second or third or fourth business are just, it's really heartening to kind of see, not saying that there aren't colossal failures that exist in my life on a weekly basis, you know, but I, uh, but uh, I do feel, feel like some of the, you know, the learnings we had in the first one directly apply to the second one. You know, I think one of the things that's been interesting for me is to be on both sides of the, the financing table now to kind of see, you know, both we went through the process of raising venture capital at Aspire, but now I'm also participating, as you mentioned, in this group called K Street Capital here in DC and, you know, doing both angel investment and then also structured investment through, through that group. And um, it is cool how... Uh, how simple you can make kind of the business process and how complicated as entrepreneurs we try and make it. Fundamentally, it's all a series of experiments. You know, it's all kind of like testing hypotheses and controlling things. And I always say, you know, in, in entrepreneurship, I always use the word experiment as a justification for erratic behavior. I'd be like, we're, we're going to do a launch party over here, right? And it's like an experiment. Ah, we're going crazy, right? But like the traditional definition of an experiment is like, you know, you imagine a scientist in a white lab coat standing behind a desk with chemicals, with a hypothesis and a, and a control and, you know, variables is way more of a discipline than it is like erratic behavior, you know? And so I like that idea that like the more you can get, the more practice you have in running codified experiments, the more effective you're going to be in this, in this sort of business world. Um, and I think that applies again on both sides of the equation as an investor and as an entrepreneur. Certainly. What I, what I see in my daily daydreams and the rat holes I end up going down, I'm becoming much more systematic with my experiments, right? So I know, come up with a crazy idea. I'm going to reach out to this person about this. I'm going to research this. I'm going to do this. And I've now got sort of a workflow that hopefully gets me to a, a yes or no conclusion pretty quickly versus 15 years ago, I would just hammer and hammer and hammer and go for it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I love that. And again, it's sort of like, you know, I'm, you know, the, the process of learning how to be a scientist, you learn how to run experiments more effectively, how to apply sort of thought in a structured way or whatever. I think entrepreneurship is very similar to that. And I think, uh, you know, to your point, right, the more you do it, the better you, you get it in. I really like this idea of sort of restructuring entrepreneurship as a series of hypotheses and a series of experiments. I think the most effective pitch, you know, for those of you listeners who are who are um, you know, raising capital right now. Most people who raise financing, at least at the very early stages of, of business, they use the same 10, sl 10 slide pitch deck. You know, they're like, this is the problem, this is the solution. Here's a competitive slide, here's like some finances and here's like a hockey stick and you know, we're asking for money kind of thing. And like, it's so disappointing that in such an exciting field of entrepreneurship, we teach everyone to gravitate towards the mean and just sort of become like the same sort of pitch and the same sort of structure. I think the most effective um, you know, sort of business pitch is this idea that like, in order for my business to work, these 10 things must be true. I know that these five things are true. I don't know that these five things are true. And so I'm running a series of experiments 
to prove these five things true systematically, mm-hmm. right? And that's honestly what you're financing as an investor, right? Is not you're not financing a business, you're not financing around, you're financing this structured series of experiments to prove just a small number of things true or false, you know. Um, yeah, and so I, I love that way of thinking. I think it's really inspiring, and I think it's also it's 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 cool in its simplicity, right? Because it makes it so it does democratize this idea of entrepreneurship. We do that in our daily life, right? It's not so hard to do that for your business. You know, it's it's amazing. You know, I first got into the venture world back in the first dot com, you know, the early two thousands, and when that bubble burst, it changed my career. And that that it's smooth sailing still kind of since then. But it's interesting that the pitch decks that I do see from time to time, and it's much less frequent now than it was back then. To your point, those first ten slides are the same, <laughs> and it's always yeah. it's and it, it, and it's almost disheartening to open it up and say, "Oh, here we go." Like I know the website right. that you downloaded that from. I know right, right, exactly. <laughs> I always, I mean, I think it's funny. It's like when you apply for a job, if you apply with the same resume, you know, the HR person is going to see hundreds of the same resume and they'll sort of filter through it and they won't see the nuance and the beauty of each individual's background, you know? And the same thing I think is true in business. You know, if you make everything exactly the same, all of these entrepreneurial ventures are so unique and different and like never really been done before. And that's like the definition of what it means to be an early stage entrepreneur, you know? And so I don't know why we teach people to just like completely flatten that whole thing and make it as boring as we do. So I, I, one big takeaway from this podcast, don't make those 10 slide pitch decks anymore. It's not worth it. So. <laughs> that's better. And is that the type of work you're doing at Think Nimble? Are you helping your clients think and see differently when they're approaching the marketplace or you name it. Yeah. So we're, we're a traditional software development firm. And so we work typically with early stage founders to build the first, second or third version of their technology. We started this off actually kind of as a lifestyle business. Um, we, after our company got acquired, the team that went through the acquisition started working with early stage companies just as kind of like developers who had been there before, who kind of knew how to apply the right pressure at the right time so that they could raise money and kind of go through the entrepreneurial journey. So we started it purely as advisory, kind of like you're talking about with the idea that we would outsource development or kind of work with, you know, overseas developers or whatever it was to actually build the products. Uh, and we took a cash, a mix of cash and equity to be able to make that stuff happen. But as the company grew, I think what we found is that there's this huge market of entrepreneurs who need what I'll call human development, right? Like people who are able to explain the code and understand not just how to write code, but also how do you apply it to the entrepreneurial process. And also we needed to have people who sort of on the development side subscribe to that philosophy that development is not just coding, right? It's really making something happen. I always say software application, that word software application is the application of software to a human process, you know? And if you don't understand the human process, you can't really make development happen effectively. So I would say like we are, you know, in, depending on kind of who I'm talking to or whatever, I describe our company as an incubator and accelerator We build businesses, we don't build apps, you know, technology is the least important part of what we do. Um, You know, we help companies raise financing, grow their business. But if you take all the hours that our firm does and you sort of like, you know, normalize it on a table or whatever, the majority of the time that we're working, we're doing software development and kind of strategy around technology. Um, You know, I I had this dream that I think, you know, entrepreneurial support uh, can, can happen in a lot of different ways, you know, but I think that technology is one of those things that there's just a lot of really predatory services out there and a lot of really sort of lackluster services out there. 
And so my, my dream is I do want to build this into more of a multifunctional accelerator, right? Where we do accounting and legal and that sort of stuff. But right now, technology is our bread and butter. Certainly. And I can speak from experience on the finance and accounting side. Um, you know, I find in the entrepreneurial community, there's a lot of dependence on the CPA to provide the business side of financing, financing and also financial management. And there's a disconnect because they've got, you know, 900 clients and they're doing 900 tax returns and they're not, they don't have as much experience in the day-to-day financial management. How are you using your data to make business decisions? And so to your point, yeah. you know, that's the, the swim lane that I play in and swim in and I love it. I think that's great. I mean, I always say this when we, when we get our balance sheet and our PL at the end of every month, you know, we're lucky we have a really good accounting firm, but, but, you know, prior to that, when we were working, we, we would get um, our PLs and I would always ask the question, like, what is this? What is this number? How do you define this depreciation? Like, what is this? What is this? It wasn't a tool for making decisions as a business owner. It was more kind of like busy work that I was going through at the end of every month. But like the goal of a really good vendor or a really good partner should be giving you the tools to make effective decisions. Right. And that requires so much context, right? Like both on both sides, right? The entrepreneur needs to understand what the vendor is providing to them in a deep way, right? And the vendor needs to understand what the business is trying to accomplish. They can serve it up. And I think the same thing applies to technology, right? Like if you just ship code over the fence and you say, I built it, right? The entrepreneur can't say, okay, but what if I was to go into this new market? What are the costs of that? What is the what is the process? What would I be losing by doing that? What are the trade-off decisions? You know, and that sort of thing is so important. So Decision support systems are like the most important thing that I think you can provide as a vendor, no matter what you do, CPA, accountant, legal, you know, whatever, right? And, and that applies to us as well as technologists. Absolutely. Um, so shifting gears slightly, you mentioned that you're on both sides of the table, both uh, an entrepreneur, business owner, and also a venture investor. What areas are getting you excited in the venture vesting world? Oh, that's a great question. And um, so my... Uh, my heart is in educational technology right now. I think that's something that I'm reading about a lot and thinking about. I think a lot of the venture world right now is sort of, you know, reacting to the pandemic. I think we've seen such, you know, changes happen. Um, experiments that should have been happening maybe across a lot of different industries are now being forced to happen because of the pandemic, you know, remote work, um, sort of like, you know, the flattening of kind of like salaries across the United States, all this stuff probably was going to happen at some point, but the pandemic made it happen. And, you know, there's a few kind of really poignant, uh, I'll call them Zoom adjacent industries. You know, it's like obvious that like we're doing remote work, right? But training employees to think about remote work in an effective way during an onboarding process, there's a business in that, right? And it's kind of two standard deviations away from the major trend that's happening right now. Um, But those sorts of things are coming out of the woodwork. And I think ed tech in particular is one of those industries that everyone agrees right now that education should technology will topple education, right? But like how and why and when it's going to happen is still unclear. I used to work for this company called Everfy. I was one of their first product managers and it's a, it's a big ed tech company now, but I joined when they were, when, you know, it was really, really small. And um, it was, it was cool because it was in 20, 2012 is when I joined. And, um, you know, at the time, the, the, the most exciting things in ed tech were effectively just YouTube, but just a little bit of a wrapper around them, right? It was like online courses that were just recordings of professors talking, right? 
But now that every university in the world is dealing with hybrid learning all the time, right? They're trying to figure out ways of translating laboratories and science buildings over into online education or whatever. I just feel like there's this big boom that's about to happen. At Think Nimble, we've worked with quite a few ed tech companies. And I just think that there's, there's just so much potential in that space and so much untapped potential right now that I'm just really excited to see where it goes. That's great. Um, yeah, I think you're, you're spot on there that there is a lot of room for innovation within that sector for sure. Um, flipping over to the financing side and given the volatility that we're seeing in the markets today, are you seeing deals taking longer to get together, valuations changing, terms changing? Give us a sense of what the venture market feels like from the, the investor side. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, definitely, I think there's a reaction right now to um, even public perceptions of where the market is going right now. I think entrepreneurs are a little bit reluctant to raise right now, you know, um, and they're they're nervous about the idea of starting a new initiative or a new phase in their business. And so risk is a little bit tamped down on the entrepreneur side of things. And the same thing I think applies on the investor side of things. I mean, it is interesting because like a lot of previous indicators around our economy um, that we're using to kind of project forward what will happen here they're not really complete sort of indicators inflation has been high before but inflation has never been high before at the tail end of a massive economy shuttering pandemic you know so like we're there's just so much unknown right now but i think that that volatility is, is scary for everyone um I, I i see it most poignantly right now in the tech markets you know obviously salaries are super high right now for for technologists um, big companies right now are hiring so many technologists away, and a lot of early stage tech companies are having a hard time finding developers at you know reasonable salaries right now um, to be able to work for their companies. And so I think that's also stifled a little bit of innovation. I think on the entrepreneurial side of things, but um, you know, I uh, although I love economics and I love thinking about it, it's not an area of expertise for me. And so like I, I'm sort of like you know I'm sort of like just like everyone else, I'm kind of waiting to see what happens and and leaning on people who are much smarter than me to kind of give me advice on, on what to do right now. Yeah, my general opinion, and I earned a bachelor's degree in economics uh, before my finance degree, and I, I tend to believe there's half the population that thinks one way and half the population that thinks the other way, and one's going to be right and one's going to be wrong, and it's more a flip of the coin than it is educated guessing. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think so. And the thing that's so interesting, I think, about the early, early stages of financing is that they tend to be you know, not recession proof, right? But a lot of it is discretionary financing from early stage entrepreneurs, um, you know, or for early stage entrepreneurs from like wealthy individuals or ex exited entrepreneurs or whatever. I do think there's a massive difference between angel funding and seed funding that comes through individuals and institutional funding. And I think the most interesting thing to look at, you know, is kind of like, you know, we call it the series A cliff. There's a lot of early stage companies that'll raise kind of like I don't want to say easy money, right? But they'll raise individual friends and family money from, you know, from folks around them, right? But then they'll hit this big cliff when the style of diligence being applied to them at the Series A stage is so different than it was in the early, early stages. In the early stages, it's a lot more about personality and vision and people. At the later stages, it's a lot more about market size and true valuations and understanding like what your economic model is, and how it's going to scale and what the network effects are and all that stuff, right? I think the Series A and Series B stage of things is a really interesting thing to watch right now and kind of seeing how different markets, you know, EdTech currently is going through a massive consolidation, right? And it's really interesting to see that happen because early stage financing is drying up a little bit in that space. So um, anyway, very interesting topic, you know, and I, I maybe a little bit out of the scope of this podcast, but something I love thinking about. Well, as a finance person, I love talking about it as well. And that, that Series A cliff is so true 
and there's been many of my clients and companies that I've seen that have done the friends and family or the, the one onion skin around them fundraise at X valuation. And then you get to series A and it's a totally different due diligence process. Yeah. It's a totally different scrutiny. There's a lot more people involved. And all of a sudden, like the egos just get squashed from time to yeah. time. Well, and I think that is the most interesting thing is we, I, I do believe there's such importance, I think, at the early stages around the founding team. You sort of know that the company is going to pivot at the early stages, especially when you're investing very, very early, right? You're investing way more at, at the, on the on the rider than the horse, whatever it is, right? Um, but I, I do think we sometimes overemphasize the importance of the person and we de-emphasize the importance of the business model and the true nature of the valuation. Because, you know, as investors, we are looking to get a return, right? It's like, it's a huge part of the investment process and the path to the return at a reasonable multiple is a huge consideration for the investment side of things, right? And so, you know, I think that the earlier in your entrepreneurial journey, you can apply the structured style of diligence that you know you're going to encounter at a later stage of financing, the better you will be served, right? And you can you can sort of see when you, when you work with early stage entrepreneurs, the ones who apply structured, you know, the structured scientific method we were talking about earlier, um, people who apply that to their business strategy. I, I think the most effective entrepreneur is the one who can articulate their business strategy in that series of experiments and say, look, I don't know this business is going to work. Neither do you. Let's just be honest, right? But if it were to work, this is what it would look like. And mm -hmm. here's the things that must be true to make it happen. And, and I think that's something that as early as possible in your business, you should be able to articulate and say, and it'll serve you really well when you're going after that series A and series B. I do think the recessions are really interesting because there's such a, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're saying it too at Case Street, we're just seeing so many people who are starting businesses right now, right? And I think because of that, and because of the relatively, you know, lucky state that we've been in where we haven't, the economy hasn't completely collapsed, even though the economy has stopped, you know, for a lot of people over the last couple of years. And there is a lot of discretionary cash that wasn't expected to be there that people are investing in early stage companies right now. And so that that has, um, it's been really great, I think, for everyone to be able to start businesses or whatever. But I do think the rigor has been fairly low in terms of what it takes to start a business. During a recession, that's going to change, right? The more principled and disciplined and organized you can be around your investments and your strategy, the more tight you can be around cash or whatever, the better you're going to be served. And so I think that like, in, in all cases, it serves entrepreneurs well to think that way now, preparing for a recession, right? Um, but I think it'll be really exciting. I think a lot of, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of businesses will close. A lot of early stage startups that have been going through this this um, kind of like lucky period that we're in right now uh, will close. But I do think we'll also see a lot of really great things come out of this. Um, so, you know, if there has to be a recession, at least there will be some, um, you know, I think there will be some positive economic development that comes out of it. The, the discipline that you're talking about, um, very much fits underneath the umbrella of leadership, right? If you're that entrepreneur just going for it um, without considering what's down the road or the recession that might be around the corner or what the deal structure is going to look six, nine, 12 months from now, you're, you're, you're walking blindly and not living that leadership role that you should be running an organization and looking and, and planning for the future. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah. You know, let's, let's, change topics a little bit and talk about you. Give us a little bit of sense of where you, where you're born, how you, where you grew up, like how'd you get into sure. this path of, of, of venture investing and software development? Yeah. So my, my personal background. So I was, um, I was born in the United States, but my parents are from India. 
Um, and they came over about 10 years before I was born. Um, and so I was born in New York. I'm the first of, I have, you know, a, a million cousins, like most Indian families, um, but I'm the oldest of everyone. And I was the first one born in America. And so, um, you know, I was, I was sort of like caught between these two, you know, cultures sort of, there was like, you know, my, my family is fairly Americanized, but they're still, you know, born in India, raised in India, kind of grew up there. And then all of my younger cousins are born in America and, and grew up here. And so, you know, I think that skill of translation and sort of understanding two different cultures, how they fit together. I grew up in Indiana. My township in Indianapolis was 99.97% white, you know, and we were like the Indian family that like the scale or whatever that made it not 100%. And so it was just, it was interesting. I was always sort of between two different cultures and, and kind of, you know, playing that role of, of uh, I guess, translator. And I think that's that's been really nice in terms of, you know, the entrepreneurial world, because I do think so much of entrepreneurship is translating between disciplines and between different communities of people. Um, you know, my father is an entrepreneur. He started a LED sign shop. He worked for GM for a while, but then he left GM and he started this LED sign shop. And my mom is a dentist. And so she ran a dental practice. And so I was surrounded by entrepreneurship, you know, at the dinner table, my parents would talk about their employees and kind of like, you know, how they were hiring people and, and managing people and all that. So it was just kind of part of the culture of how we, how we grew up. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I sort of always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneurship and the, the financing side of things, I think happened more, um, as we went through our raise, I just, I really have been drawn to it. I love the style of thinking that goes into, um, that goes into, um, you know, venture. And I think particularly in the early stages, I think it's so, it is so exciting to be surrounded by structured thought applied to innovation. Um, I feel like it's the best of all worlds, right? It's like, you get to see, any discipline, any any sort of you know business that you want to go into, any industry that you want to see, you get to see kind of like the newest version of that industry, right? Um, and you get to apply a lot of thought about how that's going to affect humanity and people. So it's like one part sociology, one part economics, one part business, one part people, you know. And I, I just love I love seeing how that all that all that comes together. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of me in a nutshell. Fantastic. So you're talking to yourself when you're just starting your entrepreneurial journey, knowing what you know now and the experiences that you have, what are some, what's some advice you'd give yourself looking back? Yeah, I think that's a great question. My, uh, uh, I think my younger self thought that entrepreneurship was made way more of a moment in time than it was a career path. Um, you know, I think we, and I, we do think a lot that entrepreneurship is a moment in time. You know, if you were to say, who are the entrepreneurs, you know, of this generation or whatever? People would talk about Steve Jobs. They would talk. They never talk about the 18 years of work that went into the overnight success, right? They always talk about that overnight success, right? And I think when people go into entrepreneurship, they sort of expect that moment to happen. But um, you know, the journey is a lot more exciting than the destination. I think even for a lot of entrepreneurs, when they sell their business, you know, and and we went through something similar, right? When you sell your business, um. It, it's just the start of something new, right? It's it's the next stage of your journey or whatever. And so um, I love that idea of just kind of thinking of entrepreneurship as a series of dots in a line, you know, like you kind of go from stage one to stage two to stage three to stage four. And if you think about that and you think about entrepreneurship is that you can apply the same style of thought you would to any career, right? Like you become an entry level accountant, right? And then you get to like the second level of your accounting career and your third level of your accounting career or whatever. And the same thing applies in the entrepreneurial world. So um, maybe I would tell myself to, uh, to, you know, have a more beginner's mind and a more open mind to kind of every stage of the journey that I was on. And uh, I think that would have served me a little bit better. I love it. I love it. Um, 
you know, what comes to mind is, is a conversation, many conversations I've had around entrepreneurship and I see it not just for the business builder or the technology developer, but there's entrepreneurship everywhere, right? There's entrepreneurship in fortune 500 businesses. Like there's entrepreneurship Sorry. within schools. It's, you know, it's just taking that innovation, having that passion, wanting that curiosity really drives entrepreneurship. Um, and the fact that we get to call it entrepreneurship and business owning is just jargon, really. It's just how we've yeah. sort of made it up. Um, so I think it's kind of like it's kind of like the discipline of writing, right? Like you can study writing as a discipline, right? And and many people do, and that's that's a definitely like a viable group. But also, everyone in the world needs to know writing to some extent to be able to communicate in their normal world. I think entrepreneurship is kind of the same thing, right? Like you can just purely study and understand entrepreneurship, but that's a really like weird thing, right? Because there's so much that surrounds entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is more like the foundational part of a lot of other things that you do, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, to me, it's like writing your business or whatever, right? They're just sort of like blanket terms that apply in a lot of different situations. So if an audience member is looking to get in touch with you, what's your social media, email, platform of choice? Yeah. I mean, as a technologist, I'm pretty terrible at social media. Um, so I always get teased a lot by my peers for that. But um, I am on Twitter and I am, you know, sort of in the, the social sphere, but I'm, I'm not very active. The best way to contact me is my email. It's just Neil, N-E-I-L, at thinknimble.com. Um, we have a lot of programs through Think Nimble. You know, we do office hours. We have quite a few lectures. We have office events and all this stuff that people can participate in. And so you can definitely find us there. But, um, but I love talking to entrepreneurs. I spend most of my day, I think, interacting with early stage entrepreneurs and you know, working with them and joining advisory boards and doing all that. So I would love to talk to, to anyone. Just feel free to reach out by email and I will get back to you. Wonderful. And we'll have all those links in our show notes. So if you're trying to write that down right now, stop and just scroll down <laughs> and look at the show notes. So Neil, one final question. I will question. say the, the name, the name Neil Shah is like the, uh, it's like the John Smith of India. There are so many <laughs> Neil Shahs out there. So if you linked in me, you'll it. probably find many Neil Shahs who are not me, right? So yeah, definitely look at the show notes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so one final question, where, where do you get your content? Are you a book reader? Are you a podcast listener? Are you a blog reader? Like tell us where the information that you use to make your decisions and your hypotheses where does that information come from yeah most I, so i think there's two kind of categories i i am a book reader i think for me i've never really i i just i think i you know that's just the style of of you know uh, information gathering that i really connect with i have gotten really excited lately by this whole wave in the uh in the personal knowledge management space there's a series of tools like obsidian and rome research that are research tools that that people can use to kind of read things so um, I, um, you know, I, I collect articles. I'm sort of like an information hoarder. I collect articles, I collect podcasts, I collect YouTube videos. And I, you know, I try and create sort of my own little like digital garden that I curate around research. But most of my content comes from books. Um, and I'm a really avid Kindle user and audiobook listener. Um, and I find that there's just no substitute for long form um, content. And so where do you store that? What, what system are you using to curate your information so that you can garden it at some point. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I would, I would recommend there's a whole, uh, there's a whole, there's this guy, Nick Milo, who is a, um, he runs a YouTube channel called linking your thinking and it's extremely nerdy. And my wife makes fun of me all the time for watching it, but um, it's uh, I love it. And he is just so thoughtful. 
Um, but I use this tool called Obsidian. It is a note-taking tool, but the benefit of it is it allows you to create links between the notes that you're, you're taking. And I use Obsidian in conjunction with a tool called Readwise. And Readwise is a, um, a, um, you know, a tool that allows you to connect your Kindle notes, your, your article notes, your podcast notes, even your YouTube notes into one central space. And it kind of collates that and shares it with Obsidian. So um, it's just a really amazing series of kind of connections between all the different ways that you can consume information and it just translates them down in notes for you. And so I highly recommend looking at that if you're interested in this. Um, and if you just Google the term digital garden, you'll see all this stuff. But the, the sort of umbrella bucket is personal knowledge management. And it's uh, it's really exciting. It just in the last couple of years, there's been a whole series of tools that have emerged around it. Yeah, I've been using Evernote uh, for many years now, and I, but I still feel a little bit disorganized. So part of my questioning yeah. was for the audience, but part of it was for me as well. Yeah, well, I love I love that stuff, I'm, and we can talk about that separately from the podcast. But I, uh, I would, I one of the things I love about Obsidian is just how, um, how. Uh, nice it is to reference things in the past with Evernote. I used Evernote for a long while. I would take notes and I never look at them again. I find myself opening Obsidian every day and kind of like referring to it in different ways. So it's really changed the way that I interact with my, uh, with the information that's around me. That's fantastic. It's a great nugget. Well, Neil, it's been awesome to have you on the show. Um, we went in many different directions, but all of it under that umbrella of leadership for sure. Uh, your experience is vast. And uh, again, thank you for sharing many of your experiences and giving us your insights. No, it was great to participate. I'm glad you invited me and it was good talking. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com. One last food for thought, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone.